Good morning. Great to see you all here, and those of you who are watching online, live, or later on demand, welcome to our services this morning. Uh, we are in an Advent series, and we're looking at four of the major themes of Advent. Last week, we looked at hope. This week, we're looking at peace, love, and then for our Christmas services, we're looking at joy. And in a sense, the final theme, which is Christ, uh, of course, as well. So today is on peace, and peace is one of the most profound concepts in the Bible. We're not going to go as deeply into it, uh, but the, we will be watching the Bible Project video, and uh, you know, in about five minutes, it's going to blast you <laughs> with all kinds of information. Uh, but we're going to focus a little bit more on personal peace, experiencing peace. We will tie into the broader subject uh, by the end of the sermon. Uh, and, and the question, in a sense, is what can we expect when we pray for peace? What can we expect? What is, what is God going to do when we pray for peace? Uh, so because understanding the Bible and our purpose in life doesn't have to be a mystery, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. It's on page in our Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. It's on page 1181, 1181, 1181 in those Bibles. Now, the scripture reading on video is not going to be this passage, but stay there in your Bible. We'll we'll get there pretty, pretty quickly in the sermon. We're going to pray as we always do. This prayer is based on 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We pray for the illumination of the Holy, the Holy Spirit to give us illumination of the Scripture into our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for making a way for us. Through Christ, we are reconciled to you. In him, we find our salvation. In him, we are made righteous. As we look to your word, give us understanding, give us confidence in the power of the gospel and faith in what's to come. Remind us of the constant presence of your Holy Spirit as we share your truth and show your love to the world around us. Father, we raise up before you uh, all the people who right now are suffering because of that tornado uh, in Kentucky and uh, those other states, Father. Um, Think of families who have lost loved ones, people who are missing, the the fear of wondering if they're going to be okay. People who have been injured or in the hospital and need healing, I pray that you heal them. I pray that you bring comfort for the rebuilding, Father. I pray that you, um, that you bring your people into that area to help in any way possible. We pray for the government officials there and for all the relief efforts that are going to be going on in the coming weeks, months, and even years. We thank you that you're a God who cares about those kinds of things. And we lift that all up to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we are going to listen to the scripture, then we're going to watch the Bible Project video, and then we're going to be focusing on peace, you know, a sense of calm, a sense of wholeness in all circumstances. It's made possible through the peace of Christ that was announced by the angels uh, on that first Christmas morning. So let's watch the scripture being read. Isaiah 9, 5 through 7. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. 
and he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Luke 2, 13 through 15. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting, it also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom, and his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, my peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. 
Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven and on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. I don't think I have to bring up a whole lot of statistics to say that we're living in a time of a lot of anxiety. Uh, but I did come across this, a recent American Psychiatric Association poll that showed that between this year, and this is probably a few months ago, between this year and the year before, that anxiety had risen 62% or 62% higher uh, instances of anxiety or people reporting that they are anxious. And then if you go back kind of pre-COVID, it's two times higher than all those, all those um, years or for three years before that. And some of the factors that people gave for their anxiety were things like personal safety, COVID-19, politics, uh, climate change, guns, gun violence. Uh, this was before, I think, inflation started to take off, so probably you could add that to it now, and then you can add all of our personal things that are happening in our lives. This might be uh, the most anxious Christmas that we have experienced in years and years. And it takes its toll on us. Anxiety takes its toll on us. It begins to wear us down. It drains us of energy. It drains us of joy. It impacts our relationships. I know when I get anxious, I get very self-focused. And so when things don't go my way, what happens is, is I snap, especially at the people uh, around me. And it's not a trivial thing to be experiencing anxiety on our way in. Uh, I, don't, I, I hadn't said anything about today's sermon, but Lois said, have you ever seen all those headlines about like all these people are saying kids and anxiety, you know, at a crisis level, some new headlines. I said, no, I haven't seen those. Uh, but it is something, it is not a trivial matter. One of the major themes of Advent is peace. And um, you may be wondering, uh, personally, this time this year, whether you're going to be able to experience peace at all during this season, personally. So I want to show you today that personal peace is not as far out of reach as you might think, but it's also probably not exactly what you might think. Uh, the personal peace that God offers can bring calm into our lives, a sense of comfort, a sense of order, but it may not always eliminate anxiety, worry, or fear. So let's look at one of the key passages today, and we have our Bibles open, hopefully, at uh, Philippians chapter 4, and let's look at verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So verse 6, very famous verse in the Bible. A lot of us have memorized it. Think about it a lot. Do not be anxious, the Apostle Paul says, about anything. Pray to God in your anxiety, and his peace will guard your hearts and your minds. Now, I want you to consider this. 
It's an idea I want to develop throughout the whole sermon. What if do not be anxious about anything is an invitation? It's an encouragement. What if it's not a command? And so what if it's not meant to like put a new burden on you? Like, I'm anxious, I've prayed, I still feel anxious. I must not have enough faith. Uh, I must not love God enough. You know, that kind of burden. What if it's not a promise to flush anxiety and fear and worry out of our lives? I want to show you what I mean. So I want to tell you or show you kind of a tale of two Pauls, uh, a true tale of two Apostle Pauls, uh, or at least two depictions of the Apostle Paul in his own words, how he describes himself. And so those of you who are familiar with the Apostle Paul, you've read, you've read his epistles, you've read the book of Acts maybe more than once, you've maybe been in church a lot of years. I want you to just think for a moment and ask yourself, does the Apostle Paul seem to you to be an anxious person? You Don't answer out loud, just think about it. The Apostle Paul seemed to be a fearful, worried, or anxious person. Um, Would the Apostle Paul have considered being anxious a personal failing uh, of faith, of trusting in God? Would he have considered that? So I want to show you two Pauls. The first Paul is the fearless Paul. Uh, If you read his epistles, if you read the book of Acts, you learn a lot about the Apostle Paul. And we're going to focus on Philippians, though, and one passage that really ties in very closely from 2 Corinthians we're going to look at today. So turn back to chapter 1 of Philippians. And uh, the Apostle Paul describes when he starts out this letter, they know this, and you read between the lines, you find out the Apostle Paul is in prison. He's been imprisoned for preaching his faith, some complicating factors around that. He knows that he's going to go to trial, and he knows that one of the potentials for the outcome of his trial could be execution. And he talks a lot about that, especially from verse 12 on. But look at verse 21, where it kind of captures the mood of what he's trying to describe in this whole passage, where he says, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's basically saying, look, this could end in execution. This could turn out very badly for me, but don't worry. I'm not worried about it. I'm not sweating it. Either way, I'm not anxious. I'm not afraid to die. I'm ready to die. In fact, I consider it a gain if I were to die. And if I live, my life will continue to be about Christ and doing his work. All right, so turn to chapter 4. We're looking at the fearless Paul. So in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, after the passage about anxiety, uh, begins to give a, um, a thank you. This letter is a thank you letter to the Philippian church because they've sent an emissary named Epaphroditus. We'll learn a little bit more about that later. They've sent an emissary to minister to his needs while he's in prison. And one of the things in, you know, first century prisons, uh, if you didn't have a means of being able to get food brought to you by your friends or family, uh, you're going to get some food. They're not going to let you starve to death, but you're not going to get very much food. There's very, you're very dependent 
on friends and family bringing in food to you. And so the Philippian church, knowing that the Apostle Paul is in prison, they have sent Epaphroditus, and they've sent him to minister to him, just personally minister to him, but not just to personally minister to him, to also bring some funds to help him so that he can buy some of his own food and take care of some of those kinds of things. And so he's saying thank you at the end of the letter. And in verse 11, chapter 4, he says, I am not saying this, because he says, it's great that you showed me concern. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. In other words, he says, I don't sweat it. When I don't have enough and if I go hungry, it's okay. I've learned contentment in those situations. I don't need more, even when I have very little. Even when I'm needing uh, more, I don't feel like I need it. I'm not sweating it. Now, you can't talk about the fearless Paul without going to this passage in 2 Corinthians, which summarizes a lot of Paul's ministry. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'll put it up on the screen here, where he describes to the Corinthians some of his experiences with preaching the gospel. And you see many of these played out in the book of Acts. It says, five times I received from the Jews, remember, it's his fellow Jews, the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. Um, I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Okay, this, this, this fearlessness is displayed in the fact that each one of these things, you have to go to the book of Acts to see exactly how it works. Each one of these things that he experienced happened because of the way that he did his ministry. And then you see that he gets beaten or he gets stoned or, you know, one of these things happen to him. And what does he do? Once he recovers, he gets back up, he goes into the next city, and he does the same things again that have happened to him in the city before that and in the city before that and in the city before that. That's fearlessness, right? It's like I am not it's not going to hold me back. I, I have a ministry. I'm going to do my ministry. I know how most effectively to carry out my ministry. It gets me into a lot of pain and into a lot of hardship, but I'm going to do it that way. Same vibe as Philippians 1. I'm in jail. It's okay. If I die, it's okay. So that's a sampling of the fearless Paul, the I don't sweat it, not very worried about things, not anxious at all. But there's another Paul, and uh, I want to show you uh, that Paul as well. So turn to chapter 3. What kept Paul up at night? What kept him awake at night? What played around in his head? What, what brought a, a lot of worry, 
sorrow, grief, pain to him uh, in spite of his fearlessness for his own safety. One of the things that might come to mind, because we've just finished a series on Romans 9 through 11, you remember at the beginning of Romans 9, the lament that my own countrymen, he's thinking of people like his siblings, his parents, his teachers, his friends. He says they haven't received Christ. And so he is lamenting. He is in sorrow. He says, I'd give, I'd give away my own relationship with Christ if, they, if that would do anything to bring other people in. I mean, I'd, I'd be condemned. I'd, I'd allow myself to be condemned. You know, I would trade that, my salvation, for their salvation. Well, we get a hint of that in Philippians. So in the, in the epistle where he says, do not be anxious about anything, he says in chapter 3, verse 18, for as often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. All right, again, what is he thinking about? He's thinking about people he knows and he cares about. And they live as enemies of the cross of Christ. They resist Christ. They beat him. They reject him. uh, And it leaves him in tears. Now you can say, well, that's sorrow. But sorrow has always mixed in with it worry anxiety, and fear. He fears for them. He's worried about them. He is anxious for them. It's the correct way to describe what he's experiencing. Now, turn back to chapter 2, verse 25. So, I told you about Epaphroditus. So, Paul is going to tell us a little bit about what happened when Epaphroditus came, and beginning in verse 25, chapter 2, verse 25. But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, and he almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. (laughs) All right, so the Apostle Paul is talking again about sorrow. He doesn't say it would have brought sorrow to my life. He uses a term that means I already have a lot of sorrow in my life, and this would have added sorrow to my life. Now, interestingly, this book of Philippians, this letter, is oftentimes called the epistle of joy. And yet, it is filled with statements about the apostle's sorrow um, and his his grief uh, for people. So, the term that says there, I will have less anxiety, can actually be translated in two different ways. It's not the same term as chapter 4. And so, it can mean less sorrow. It's one word that can mean, it's got a a vowel in the front that makes it, mean less, less sorrow, it can mean less grief. The translation committee for the NIV chose the word anxiety. And I think it's, it's correct, even if it's sorrow. Just think of the fact that if he says, so that I can have less sorrow, which doesn't quite make sense, I'm sending it to you so that I can have less sorrow. No, it's, it's less, less anxiety over all of this for you. 
Um, but even if it means sorrow, think about the first verse we read in chapter 4, where it said, rejoice in all things, always rejoice. It means be, be joyful in all things. So in the midst of saying rejoice in all things, he's also saying, you know, I am filled uh, with sorrow, I'm filled with anxiety, all those uh, sort of things. Okay, 2 Corinthians. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians. This case, he's going to use the word anxiety, and it's the same term as Philippians chapter 4, be anxious for nothing, okay? I have labored. This is going back a little bit what we read. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern. Why the NIV committee chose concern instead of anxiety, I don't know. But my anxiety, same term, for all the churches. Who is weak uh, and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Now, just from that sampling of the fearless Paul and the anxious Paul, two Pauls, a tale of two Pauls, you can see a pattern emerging. Uh, I... I as I was doing this, as I was preparing this and, and thinking through this, it just kind of like jumps out at you. Um, when it comes to himself, right? When it comes to himself, he's free from anxiety and fear. And that's quite a feat. That, that takes something to be able to, to live in, in that way. And it's not, not to his credit. It takes something to God's credit working in him and through him. But he's cooperating with God. But when it comes to spiritual or physical well-being of others, you see him sorrowful and concerned and anxious and worried and fearful for them. And a lot of you are experiencing that right now. It might be for you, but a lot of times it's for the people that we love that are closest to us because of what they're going to. Could it be that do not be anxious about anything is an invitation? And for Paul, he needs to hear it himself. He needs to hear the invitation himself. Because while he's got peace down when it comes to himself, he doesn't really have peace down when it comes to his concern for others. And I think there's a sense in which he would say, how can I have peace when people I love are far from God and may die far from God? I mean, it's just an honest, I mean, how can I experience peace in those kinds of situations? Is he in command mode? Or is he inviting? Is he in encouragement mode? So imagine you see a three-year-old running towards a busy intersection. And they're far enough away and running fast enough that you know you can't get to them in time. So what do you do? You call out their name and you scream at the top of your lungs. Stop! You're in command mode. You're hoping they understand command mode. <laughs> That this is, this, you really need to stop. But let's say, same, same deal, you're going to work and your three-year-old is crying and anxious and worried because you're going to work. And you say, you, you bend down and you say, don't worry, don't worry. I'll be back before you know it. You'll play, you'll do this and that. And before you know it, I'm going to be back, back home. Is that command mode? Is that like, stop it! 
Stop feeling worried. It's not. It's, it's an invitation. Could it be that Paul, when Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, he's inviting us to experience God's peace, not only in all circumstances, but he's also inviting us to experience God's peace in our anxiety, in our worry, and in our fear. You can experience two very separate emotions at the same time. You do it all the time. And if so, how can we take him up on his invitation to experience peace in our anxiety? So how do we pursue peace? Two, two suggestions from this passage. One is to pray well. Pray well. Uh, Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, so all circumstances, by prayer and petition, petition is just another way of saying prayer, it's, it's making requests, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Pray in every situation. Pray with gratitude. Don't hesitate to bring your concerns to God. He wants us to ask, God wants us to ask, and God wants us to be dependent on him. He wants us to be dependent on him. Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Luke chapter 11. Uh, Jesus is off praying. He comes back, and they're seeing him do it all this time. You know, he's got in a pattern of breaking away from the rest of the disciples and going to quiet places to pray. Uh, this is one time, interestingly, in the passage where it says, Jesus was praying by himself with his disciples there. <laughs> so he's just off. Uh, and when he's done praying, he comes back and the disciples look at him and they say, teach us to pray. John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. Teach us to pray. So you actually can receive instruction in prayer. Now, in a sense, you don't need instruction in prayer. Prayer is natural. It's simply a conversation with God. But praying well takes instruction and takes practice. And Paul is instructing us in how to pray maybe better prayers than what we're praying now, praying, praying better. Paul is saying, when you pray, spend some time reviewing all the good things that God has brought and His goodness. So gratitude, pray with gratitude. When you pray, don't hold back. Ask God for what you need. Ask Him for what you need. He wants us to ask. He wants us to be dependent on Him. He wants a childlike. Remember what Jesus said? He wants a childlike dependence on, on God. So to pursue peace, we need to pray well. We may, may need to get some instruction in prayer. Secondly, we need to value God's presence and invest our hearts, and our lives in His kingdom purposes. Okay, so I kind of joked last week, I, I left after the last service, I went to the green room, and I said to somebody who was standing there, I said, next week's sermon is going to be a repeat of this one, 100%. All I'm going to do is replace the words hope with peace. That's it. <laughs> because in reality, and I didn't think that would go across very well, but in reality, you can, I could have done that, because this, this was the point of last week on hope. If, if we're not in, we have to be investing ourselves so um, our sense of personal peace comes from our hope in God himself. 
We can hope in God himself because he is a good God and we can trust him. And it comes in, um, in our hope when our hope is based on the end of the story that he is weaving. We have a different horizon. As we talked about last week, we have a different horizon that we're looking at. Um, and, and the reality is that there are a lot of things in our lives that can worry us, especially when we're concerned about other people. But there's still the reality of that horizon. There's still Romans 8.28, that all things are going to work together for good to those who, for the good, to those who love God and are called into his, uh, according to his purposes. So it's not everything's going to work out. No, everything, even the bad, is going to work out for the good of those who are in a relationship with God. But if we don't invest our hearts, if we don't invest our lives, we can't expect God's goodness, his presence, his plans to fill us with joy, fill us with peace in difficult times because we're not invested there. Our, our peace is coming from other things, from our bank account or from a particular relationship or all these kinds of things. We're, we're invested in something, in something else. So look at chapter uh, 4, verse 4 again. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. How can we, how can we rejoice always? Because the Lord is unchanging. Because the Lord is near. Because the Lord is good. Our good God is near. The logic is pretty simple. The teaching is pretty simple. If the Lord really doesn't matter to you, well, then his presence is not going to matter to you. It's not going to bring very much peace. So we have to invest in that. We have to develop our relationship with God, with the reality of who God is. Uh, look again at verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, notice the phrase, peace of God there, okay? Peace of God. It is, probably, it is, it is a lot harder to pinpoint what Paul means there than what you might think. All right, it looks pretty straightforward. Most of us read it, and it's legitimate to read it. I mean, it, grammatically, it can mean this. The peace of God that is going to, that transcends all understanding that is going to guard my heart. The peace of God can be the peace from God. That God is going to bring peace into my life. It can have that meaning. But that's not the only meaning it can have. Uh, it can also mean the peace of Christ. Not from Christ, the peace of Christ which is the kind of peace that is referenced by the angels. When Jesus comes, the angels say, you know, in, in the Isaiah passage, for example, the prince of peace, it can say, and the prince of peace, in a sense, and the prince of peace. Okay, so it's referring to the shalom, the restoration, um, and the well-being that Jesus is going to bring to the whole world, just that reality about him. It could mean that that peace, or it could mean just the Prince of Peace, is going to guard our hearts and our minds. So as we live in the reality of God's goodness and His plans for shalom and restoration and His presence, a reality that transcends our imaginations. Okay, again, not necessarily 
a peace that transcends our imaginations, a reality, a reality that the Prince of Peace has come, that there is a horizon, that there's a plan, that there's a story that we're a part of. That transcends the imagination. When that happens, it is going to guard our hearts and our minds. We're going to be protected by that. Just think of all of Paul's anxieties for all these other people. Does he seem to you, if you're new to the Bible, you may not be able to answer this question, but if you've spent some time in the Bible, does he seem to you to be overwhelmed by his concern for people? Um, does he seem to be someone who ceases to praise God in the midst of his sorrows and his worries for other people? Does he live in despair? Like there's no reason to live. Does he live in despair? Does he shake his fist at God? What about my family? What about my people? It's actually no to all of those questions. Now, maybe he's gone through that. I mean, the Psalms are filled with God's people shaking their fists at God. So maybe he's, he's gone through that for a while, but that's not what characterizes his life. He doesn't live a life of being overwhelmed by his concerns for others. He doesn't live a life of despair, of anger at God. What do we see? We see that his hope is intact Paul is waiting for Christ to um, phrase that British scholar N.T. Wright always uses, to put the world to rights. It's a British phrase. He's waiting for, for, Christ, for God to put the world to rights. So Paul is waiting for God to put the world to rights with his hope intact. He confidently and eagerly anticipates, which is what hope means in Scripture in the New Testament, anticipates the day when what's wrong and broken in this world will be made right. That's putting the world to rights. And the hope of that day stands guard over his heart and mind. He's not overwhelmed. He's not despairing without hope. Take Paul up on his invitation. Don't hear his words as a new burden, a new command on your life that you're going to fail at. Live in his infinite grace. Live in God's infinite grace. Pursue his peace even in your worries, even in your fears and your anxiety. So we experience God's presence and his purposes as you praise him for who he is, as you rejoice in him, as you invest in his purposes by loving your neighbor as yourself. I want you to think, begin to think or to experience his peace in anxiety. So um, an oasis is a good analogy of this. In the desert. If you find an oasis in the desert, the temperature doesn't change. <laughs> doesn't change. It's the same. Same temperature. The heat can be unbearable. The desolation can be unbearable. But in the oasis, you have some shade. In the oasis, you have some refreshment from the water uh, that is there. You're not going to escape the heat, but you're going to find refreshment in the midst of the heat. Take Paul up on his invitation starting today. Pray well. Pray well. And invest yourself in that relationship with God and in what matters to him. We're going to begin our response time by celebrating communion together. And just want to remind you on the night that Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples. And he took the bread and he took the cup and 
We know it as the Lord's Supper. We know it as communion, but it was a Passover meal. And when they were done, he went out to pray. And he went out to the Mount of Olives. And he was so distressed by what was coming that he sweat drops of blood. That's how distressed he was. I, you can call it distress, but I'll call it fear, anxiety, and worry. <laughs> Not because he was going to suffer, although that had to play in, in his humanity, but because all the sins of the world were going to come on him on the cross. He had told his disciples before he went to that garden, he told them that his body was broken in their place. Let's eat the bread together. And he said, this cup is my blood. It's in your place for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the type of God who wants to be, wants us to enjoy your presence. Wants us to be focused on really the only thing that matters, which is you. Not just for your sake and your glory, but for our sakes and our eventual glory in you. Thank you that you call us to be dependent children, bringing our concerns, our anxieties, our fears to you. And I pray, Father, that we would experience your peace. Jesus, standing guard over our lives. We thank you, Father, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.